0: 1- 844-Cosentix. Ask your doctor about Cosentix.
1: At Audi, expectations matter. It's why what's standard on every Audi SUV are features that exceed yours. How we get there matters. The Audi family of SUVs. Progress you can feel.
0: Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart.
1: But then, There are moments that remind us to be more human.
0: Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of.
1: At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from McDonald's mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49 perfect with our classic fries price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. NFL Sunday ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town
2: He fielded quite poorly. He misfielded a couple on uh, long on, a third man or something. And I gave him a bit of a grilling. And I remember Joyce, he ran past me. He said, he's going to get 100 today. He said, he'd either get 100 or else he get out first ball. Something's going to happen there with him today.
3: I just remember making a comment to Niall. I remember Kev just looked grumpy. I don't know what it was. He looked grumpy and a bit slow in the outfield. I don't think he misfielded. He might have misfielded one. I think just one went for two that might have, should have possibly only been one. But uh, as anyone will tell you, Gary will definitely tell you that uh, I can be a grumpy man in the field and, and be a bit judgmental on people, even though I wasn't, you know, the quickest myself. But uh, I can't remember the exact comment, but it was, Kev looks a bit grumpy, blah bloody, blah he'll probably go and get 100. So that is a true story. And I actually brought me back immediately to Bangalore 2011.
4: That was Niall O'Brien and Ed Joyce talking about Kevin O'Brien. As Ed just said, the game was in Bangalore 2011. The game where Kevin O'Brien got grumpy and Ed predicted he'd go on to get 100. That was the game where Ireland defeated England for the first time and where they went from amateurs to professionals. This is Double Century. This season we look back at when teams had their first big win against England. This episode we look at Ireland's win in the 2011 World Cup and we speak to three of the members about how it happened and what it meant. I started by asking Niall O'Brien what English cricket meant to him.
2: As a young Irish kid, you watched cricket on the BBC, that's what you did, or else you listened on the radio. In the 90s for me, people like Jack Russell, Alex Stewart, all those kind of guys, Graham Thorpe, Graham Gooch. So all these kind of legends of English cricket are pretty big heroes of mine, really, because we didn't have much to kind of watch back home. You know, we watched Ireland play maybe a couple of exhibition games every summer, but um, English cricket is all we had, really. That's all we kind of knew, I suppose. English cricket was the be-all and end-all to a certain extent.
4: This is Ed Joyce.
3: I Personally, spent a huge amount of my life in England playing county cricket and a little bit of it playing for England, so I guess it would mean a different thing to me than it maybe means Niall or Gary or John Mooney or Trent, you know, it's the big brother sort of across the water, you know, that's the same thing in, in all sports, I guess, Uh we would look at, at English sport or England as a team, as the team to beat, you know, probably a bit like Scotland and Wales do, you know, if you look at the rugby, but they possibly don't look at us that way, you know, their sort of rivals are Australia and India in cricketing terms. When I was a kid, I wouldn't really have looked at England, to be honest, with you, in terms of rivals. I would have looked to have been watching test matches on the TV. And this is Gary Wilson, the Northern Irish member of the team. Best days of my
5: career probably were over there. So... I love beating them, but I've got a lot of respect for them as well. You know, one of my best mates is the white ball captain. So I was pleased for him that they won the World Cup in 2019. I personally have a lot of respect for English cricket and the county system. I think actually Irish cricketers of our generation owe English cricket quite a lot because we, I wouldn't say we learned our trade over there, but we certainly got it up to standard in county cricket. But, you know, whenever we play against them, you're all out to try and beat them
4: the top Irish players like these guys, it's such a complicated question, the English question. As kids, they didn't even really dream of Ireland ever being a major nation, and England is the place that made their domestic careers. But they're still from Ireland and Northern Ireland, so England is the rival, the one you want to beat and the one you want to earn respect from. And in 2009, Ireland had a very good chance of beating England in Belfast, until a very familiar face ruined it. Here's Niall O'Brien again.
2: Do you know whose fault that was? England's 12th man. And who was England's 12th man that day?
4: It was, it was Owen Morgan. Didn't he take a big catch?
2: He did. I swear. He he came off the field. And Trent Johnson was smashing us into a position of strength. And it looked like TJ might get us over the line.
4: Gary Wilson didn't play in that game. He was actually Ireland's 12th man for the match. I
5: think when Trent hit that ball, I think everyone thought it was six. And then... He's pulled out his own version of the hand of God. Like, yes, yeah, I think he got a bit of abuse, or he was getting a bit of abuse down in
2: the boundary as well. Moggy came on as sub and for someone who's about five foot six, he <laughs> positioned himself <laughs> a long on, and I swear it was like Michael Jordan's <laughs> Space jump. I've never seen someone jump so high. <laughs> they are always good games, you know. There's always good, especially in Ireland. Actually, there's always good atmosphere. There's a bit of rivalry, obviously, but pretty good natured actually. So there's always a bit of banter in the stands and. I think on the pitch, it's always played pretty firm. It's played fair, but it's pretty hard, actually. Probably a kind of missed opportunity. I thought you were talking about the T20 World Cup in Guyana, actually, there for a second, when we undoubtedly would have beaten England on that day. And the rain robbed us, and, you know, myself and Porterfield would have knocked that 130-odd off for one wicket down, no problem at all. England actually would have been knocked out of the World Cup. So we effectively should have been world champions that year.
4: Leading into the 2011 World Cup, Ireland was still largely an amateur side with Irish club cricketers and county pros in their team. After their incredible win against Pakistan in the 07 event, which launched them into the cricket world, they won 24 of their following 41 matches coming into the 2011 World Cup. They had the fourth best win-loss ratio in that period. But Bangladesh and Zimbabwe were the only test teams they defeated. And to put it a bit more into perspective, at the end of 2010, they played a two-match series against Canada, and they split that one-all. For them, the 2011 World Cup was a chance to prove they really belonged, and that started by them playing Bangladesh. And here's Niall and Ed on that game. What was the confidence like for you guys at that stage? Terrible,
3: mate. That game still grates a bit because it was such an opportunity. They started really well.
2: Yeah, that was terrible because playing in Bangladesh, Mirport, it's a really good stadium. The the atmosphere is unbelievable. But the crowd, they're some of the toughest crowd to play against as an overseas team. Literally, like, deathly silence when you hit a four or take a wicket. But when Bangladesh get on top, the place is rollicking.
3: We bowled and fielded really well, keeping to that score, which was on a good wicket. I mean, it wasn't turning square or anything like that. Kept it within a pretty
2: good score. you know. I think maybe 220 or something, 230 potentially, something like that. You know, staying corrected. But it wasn't an overly big score.
4: In fact, Bangladesh only scored 205.
2: I got in and I was playing nicely. Myself and Kev, we kind of had the grips of the game in our hands, really. One of us was there at the end. We win the game, no problem at all. Shakib did me. In the flight, and I chipped one out mid wicket. Tamim ran in and took a fantastic catch. And then my brother was batting brilliantly. Kay was batting so fluently. And he played this pull shot straight out of the screws, but unfortunately, straight to the man at deep square leg. And we never really got back in the game after that. It was a bit of a procession, really. And some of the wickets to fall at the end were a bit soft. It was a kind of dismal end to the game. And we were gutted, actually, because we knew first game of the conference, get a win on their home soil. It'd be a real statement. But we kind of had a bit of pressure on ourselves in that game because we kind of thought, yeah, these guys are here for the taking. But we were down. We were really down that night, actually.
4: Gary Wilson believes he was very unlucky to be left out of this game and again was 12th man.
5: Like I genuinely believed that we had a good chance of qualifying for the next stage and to lose the first game put a real dampener on it. And I knew how important that was going to be if we did want to qualify. So that was a real hammer blow to us to not win that game.
3: I think realistically, we really just didn't hold our nerve, being honest. Um, first game of the World Cup when we really feel got a real chance. And, you know, obviously huge crowd in Bangladesh and they didn't stop shouting the whole way through. We really should have won that game.
4: After that crushing loss was a game against England. This was not a great ODI team. I don't think anyone would argue that. But they still had players like Kevin Peterson, Graham Swan and Jimmy Anderson in the team. Here's Gary, Ed and Niall on playing England in that match. Every time you take the
5: field, no matter who you're planning, you think if we have a good day here and they have a slightly off day, we've got a chance. So from that sense, yeah, we did believe we could win because we always believe we can win. And I think that's probably one of our biggest strengths, actually, as a team we're certainly back in those days was one of our biggest strengths, our belief, our self-belief.
3: I think we knew we had a strong team, definitely this is one of the strongest Ireland teams I've ever played in it. But I don't think realistically many of us went in thinking we had a good chance of beating England.
2: Big names, but in all due respect to them, not big names in one day cricket. Let's be realistic about it. They were pretty structured in how they went about their cricket. So, yeah, they didn't really have a mystery bowler or such. They'd No one coming in bowling 92 mile an hour like a Joffrey Archer.
3: We definitely didn't go into the
4: game thinking we've got no chance, if that's what you're asking. I think we were sort of massive underdogs. England batted first, and they didn't lose many wickets. Here's Gary and Nile on the first innings.
5: Incredible captaincy from William Porterfield is what I remember. I think Jonathan Trott got 90-odd, and during his whole innings, we had mid-on and mid-off up to him. So arguably it was great skill from him to be able to rotate the strike with the field up. He was still able to do it, but... Ballsy from William to go you know actually I think he was playing with him at Warwickshire at the time or maybe just about to go to Workshire, but he obviously knew that he wasn't going to take it on but Trot and Bell I think put on a partnership I don't even I wouldn't even say it was fourth gear to be honest it was like they just knock it around and we just kept the field up and it was almost like go on then take a chance if you want and they just kept knocking his head and getting one and i wouldn't say we were happy with three two seven or three two six or whatever it was but at one point it looked like they could go on and get 450 if they just put in the accelerator and they didn't so they just sort of kept going at one pace that's
4: where he's going he gets it high in the air field has come round, takes the catch John Mooney finishes with four wickets. England finish on 327 for eight.
2: We fancy our chances, and they got a good score. Back in those days, 320-odd is probably the equivalent of a 380 now. You know, it's, it's a really good score. I mean, his break, there was a collective kind of decision and thought process that we're going to go for. it. And that sounds like a silly thing to say now, but associate teams, etc., and smaller nations may well have been happy to go out and get 270, and have an honourable loss. Well, we were saying, no, we're not interested in that. That's not how we go about our cricket.
4: Remember that in 2011, anything over 300 was a massive chase, especially to an associate nation. Here's Ed, who batted at first drop in the chase.
3: I'm thinking get a decent start. I'm thinking we have a very long batting lineup. I'm thinking I'm desperate to get runs personally having obviously played in the previous World Cup for England and then, you know, come back and, and, you know, delighted to be playing for Ireland. But uh, starting off, I thought, just get a good start, get going. You know, obviously, Paul Sterling was just making his way then, but we knew he was a very good player. Obviously, Porterfield, really good player. And obviously then he got out first ball, which is obviously the, uh, uh, not the ideal start.
1: Here he goes. Starts
2: off in fine fashion, just what he wanted. Bang on target, a good swinger that came back into the left-hander.
4: According to Gary, this was quite a normal thing for Porterfield.
5: We all sort of thought we've got to get off to the best start possible. And then William, at that stage, he just loved getting first bowlers in the chase or in, like, I think he went through a stage between 2011 and 2013 where he got like five first bowlers of the innings. So that was like, whenever Anderson got him out, you're we like, shit, we're up against
4: it here. And then Joycey, I think, came in and blocked the arse off for a while and sort of steadied the ship. With Paul Sterling scoring at more than a runner ball and Ed Joyce blocking the ass off of it, Ireland pulled themselves back into the game when Niall came into bat with Ed. After 10 or 15 overs, I was pretty happy with the way things were going.
2: Joyce, might have got 20 or 30. I got 20-odd probably. And, you know, we actually, both of us felt in good nick. Knocked around, I think, is the right description. I felt pretty comfortable
3: against the uh, Seamers, um, albeit I think I, I definitely top-edged one off Breslin, which Matt Pryor dropped. Possibly would have done me a favour by catching it at that stage. Yay!
2: Oh, there we go. Huge hike, aim to leg, and the frustration over for Graham Swan. You're still here my, describing my dismissal. <laughs> Basically nothing but a hack across the line against Swan. And then it was just myself and Joyce who were sitting in the sheds, kind of cursing our luck, you know, giving out to ourselves.
3: I really struggled against uh, Swan. He seemed to know exactly what I was about to do at any particular point, so... If I went just sweep, he bowled either slower or quicker, and then no, I just felt like he had the wood on. I don't know what it was, you know, one of those things. Bowled really well and got me out, and then he got Gary Wilson out. Yeah, on a lap sweep as well, like, what did he get, three or four?
4: In the 25th over, after dismissing Gary Wilson, Graham Swan had taken three for 24.
3: 110, 115
4: for five. Just to put Ed's comments a bit more in context, at the end of that Swan over, Ireland needed 215 runs from 25 overs, they were scoring at 4.52 runs and over themselves, while needing 8.6 with half their team out. Their reliable top order and the game was gone.
3: And I remember sitting with Gary in the changing room after he was out. I was gutted because I was yeah, 30-odd or 60 balls, and I felt like the game had gone. I didn't give enough, but I felt like the game had gone there. I felt like we'd have a good chance going in there, but 110-5, I just didn't think we had a chance. And the two of us were just sitting there gutted, really, so... It was about maybe 20, 25 minutes later when we both took off our pads and started watching again.
2: You know, I was still in the sheds and all I heard was boys, was like, just kept saying, shot, Kev, shot, Kev, go on, Kev. And I thought, what's going on here? With two groups. Here's a nice little he. That'll got to go all the way.
1: Oh, beautiful. Goes again. Same shot, same result.
4: And again.
2: That'll, that'll go, I think, all the way for six. The fastest 50 by an Irishman in uh, one day international cricket. And then the 12th man ran in and said, Nobby, my Kev's up 49.
3: Yeah, Kevin was in. I remember watching on the telly and he hit the two sixes of Swan and that over. Slug swept them and then he just started getting going. And I, the two of us went out and watched. I mean, I can't remember the numbers exactly. I'd say we were 160, 170 for five, maybe 180. <laughs> and then watched for another 20 minutes, half an hour. And then, like, it suddenly became a point whereby, geez, we have a chance here. It was the way the two of them were battling. Cusack, obviously, he's a very calm individual and it looked like he knew exactly what he was trying to do and he had it under control. And Kev, he just didn't look like he was going to miss hit anything, you know. I think it was just a, we're going to win this
5: game. I've got to do it and I've got to do it quickly. I don't think it was necessarily that we're, he was going to attack Swanee or
4: or Yard's The way he played yards was incredible because I'd played against yards a lot in England. The yards that Gary Wilson keeps mentioning is Michael Yardy, who you may remember was a full-time professional batter for Sussex, who suddenly very late in his career bowled incredible left-arm finger-spin darts that were very hard to hit and helped England a lot in their white ball cricket.
5: I always found him really, really difficult to score off, so I thought the way he played him, he kept backing away to outside leg and then yards would follow him and then cowed out of nowhere, would get to, like this paddle sweep and sweep out the shot he didn't even play.
2: In Bangalore, you've got a communal kind of viewing area. It's quite unique, really, because you're literally watching the game with your teammates and then the England boys are right beside you. So you've got England analysts scrambling around for some indication of how to get Kev out. <laughs> and uh, you've got the coaches who are kind of chewing on their fingernails a bit. KP was off injured he hurt his ankle and me and KP he's he's a good guy we've had a few run-ins in the past and he was up in the balcony saying oh why are we doing this why are we doing that and I just said I shouted over I said why did you go back out on field mate instead of sitting up here in the shed
3: it actually helped us being in the same area as the England guys because I think that you could see they were getting quite nervous and agitated uh not agitated is the wrong word, but Andy Flower was there and you could see, obviously, you know, I don't want to say something, he wasn't like gesticulating or doing anything bad, but he had the laptop in front of him and you could just see he wasn't particularly happy with the way things were going. And they've been in this situation, you're much more nervous in the England camp than you would be in the Ireland camp because you really don't want to lose to Ireland, you know, that's a disaster for them, you know.
5: There was a bit of nerves,
3: all right, yeah, because then you start to think, well, we we could win this, but
5: Like I say, we we were confident because I can remember talking to Niall actually during the chase and when he got to like 70 or 80, it was like, what do you reckon he should do here? Do you reckon we should keep going or do you reckon he should start maybe trying to knock on its head and take a wee bit of responsibility? And we sort of said, well, we just got to keep going. Like if it's been good enough for 70 or 80, it's good enough to get us over the line. So yeah, it was, I wouldn't say we expected the win whenever he got to that stage, but we knew we were a good chance and it was almost a case of, well, why not? Why can't we? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say we were, like, uber confident. Whenever we became favourites in our eyes, it was then a, well, we'll just go and do this now. It
3: wasn't like we were shitting ourselves, if you know what I mean. Felt like we had to get closer to 200, you know, then you had a few hitters down the order, and I said we had Trent and John and George to combat down at number 10, you know, so.
2: No one speaks about Alex Kuzak. It's Mm -hmm. like, he's the most under-the-radar cricketer probably I've ever played with, and he was one of the most effective cricketers for Ireland for a five or six-year period. Brilliant player, like brilliant death bowler one of the toughest men you'll ever meet and with the bat he just found a way and you know he got whatever he got 40 yards or something like that but he gave Kev good support and then I reckon when he got to about 65-70 I think he hit a massive six about 102 metres like and I remember just sitting there going we're going to win this game we're just literally going to win this game we're going to chase down 320 we're going to be heroes so actually from a long way out I thought we're probably going to win this game that's another one <laughs>
3: and he poses after it, holding his position.
0: Magnificent strike again. This is massive. This is one of the biggest sixes you'll see. It's gone
1: many a mile into the crowd. Hit straight back. Long gone is just a spectator. Chipped away on the onside. The call is He should get there. This is the fastest 100 in World
4: Cup history. Kevin O'Brien was out before the end. He made 113 from 63 balls, just a staggering innings. But the game wasn't won yet.
2: One of my closest mates, John Mooney, was there at the end. You wouldn't say John Mooney's the calmest individual in the world, but um, (laughs) certainly when there was a run chase on there, well... There probably wasn't a cooler customer in Bangalore. Whether he was sweating massively and felt under pressure internally, you wouldn't have known that. And just as he flicks that ball through mid-wicket, muscles bulging, tattoos on display, just throwing the arms in the air. One of the best days of what dreams I've made of, really. Roy of the Rovers kind of stuff. And he got two real pillars of support, I think.
4: I got Gary Wilson on because I knew he's been a major part of Irish cricket. I didn't realise at the time that almost every game I was going to ask him about, he was either 12th man for or he failed in. But he still had the one great moment from the end of this game. I think I dropped a catch. <laughs> a deep cover, diving catch off TJ maybe. So yeah, I had a
5: real good game. I got two or three or something and dropped the catch. It was brilliant. You could have got someone else more important on to talk about this, definitely. No, uh, it was a great day. It was one of the great days of Irish cricket too, to be involved. There's a great photo of me and John Mooney actually whenever he had the winning runs a few was running on the pitch I literally jumped on John boy and like my head was back in the air his arms were in the air and it made a few of the papers that was just whenever we had the winning runs a great
0: into the leg side
4: this is it this is it this is- Cricket England cannot believe it. I can't believe it. The same can't believe it. Terrific Ireland. Look at these scenes. Let's be honest this podcast wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for Kevin O'Brien and that day. Their big, strong, ginger all rounder did something just remarkable. And remember, this is someone who struggled throughout his entire career to really play that much county cricket. And yet, even if you look at his record, and it might look moderately successful, he was involved in Ireland's two biggest World Cup winning partnerships, and he made 100 in their first test after the team was embarrassing asked to follow on. Here's Ed Joyce talking about him. First of all, he's a very good player, and he's got a very good technique, and he's, you know, huge ability. So
3: um, that's not in doubt. He can't do the things he's done without having those things. But, you know, his his personality obviously suits the big occasion, you know, and, and that's a brilliant trait to have when you're a sports person you know and <laughs> um, he loves being the guy going in there and doing the business in front of people you know that's not particularly normal you know and it's great that we have someone who can do that you know so maybe I, you know, I still say he's played the two best innings I've seen for Ireland and that includes you know all of Sterlow's, you know, Sterlow's a brilliant player. But in terms of the two best innings, I think it's been in against England and in, in, the, in the Test match there. Just they sort of are out of the blue in a little way because you don't see him necessarily do those things, although he's become a bit more consistent recently. But I think it's just a big occasion because he, he loved it. He stuck his chest out and said, I'm going to be the man and was the man.
4: But we were always going to get some insight from his brother, Niall, who gave us a really interesting story on how Ireland really pushed his brother to be the player that we saw against England in this game.
2: Someone like Trent Johnson was a big advocate and a big believer in Kev. You know, his ability to hit sixes was what got him in the team. And I think in that tour in 2007, just before the World Cup in the Caribbean, you know, Kev got caught against Bermuda or something long on, on, and was sitting in the dressing rooms and said, sorry, Skipper, bad shot, whatever. And TJ said to him, what are you saying? Sorry for me. And he said, ah, oh, poor shot, weak shot. He said, it's not, mate. You're in the team to hit sixes. I've got Nobby and I've got Porterfield and these lads who can rotate the strike and go at 70 strike, rate. Right? You're here to hit sixes. So don't ever apologize again. Just next time, just hit a four yards further, you'll be fine. And that mentality and that self-belief, it must, for a simple conversation in a dressing room, while Trent Johnson was putting his pads on, in the back of your mind, knowing that the captain, the coach, has your back all the time, incredible. So. Yeah, he's a remarkable man, I must say. I would love to hit the ball as well as he did, but uh, some of us had to nudge it for ones and twos.
4: The interesting thing about Kevin O'Brien is that he's never really been a consistent run scorer. It's just that the runs did come at the most spectacular moments. He's his former captain, Gary Wilson.
5: There were times when I was captain, whenever Kev used to infuriate me, like, and even when I wasn't captain, you just think, what is he doing here? And then there are other times where he does that, and you're like... He's class. He's a big game player. I actually don't think it is luck. I think there's something in his head. He needs the crowd. He needs the big occasion. He wants to be the man. He wants to show the world, the global audience, how good a player he is. But if we're playing in front of one man and his dog, he's probably not the guy you want in. But it needs all sorts. That's probably whenever I come in and get 25 off 28 balls and get us over the line. But the team needs all sorts. And Kevy, whenever it's on TV against Pakistan in a test match in front of a pack Malahide, in our first ever Test match, he probably is the guy that you want to decrease because he wants to show the world that he's the man. And to be fair to him, he has been the man
2: in all our big occasions.
4: But perhaps no one can explain him better than his brother Niall.
2: Looking back at his kind of career today, it's, you know, the easy thing to say is he's a big match kind of mentality player, but I think he's got a steely resolve and, and an inner desire to I think kind of prove a lot of people wrong a lot of time. A lot of people kind of at home, like he's a legend, but there's a lot of people at home that Criticise him, you know, because he gets fifty balls because England, but he hasn't got a 15, 13 games wrong. He's overrated. He's this, that, and the other. Couldn't be further from the truth. Like, he's, he's exceptional talent, very mentally strong individual, technically brilliant. And that's something people aren't really going to give him the credit for. He's, as a batsman, he's technically very, very sound. Um, otherwise, that 100 against Pakistan, like, you couldn't get a 100 on that wicket. Like, it was so hard. That wicket was so difficult. And again, someone like Mohamed Abbas had it on the absolute string. Mohamed Amir was bowling 90 mile an hour. So I think it's just a culmination of a number of things. just being a fantastic cricketer, being very strong mentally, having a good technique and that desire to, when the team needs it, when when his country needs them, stepping up. Whether it's coincidence or not, I'm not quite sure because there's been plenty of big games where he probably hasn't necessarily done the biz. But um, thankfully for some of the biggest games and some of the biggest wins we've had and performances, he's been there.
4: After the match, the Irish players kind of haunted the England players. At 100 and whatever it
3: was for five, you know, not that we'd given up, it's just you just can't see how we can possibly get up to that score without something crazy happening, and that crazy thing did happen, you know, so it was a bit of disbelief from my end. We had quite a few travelling supporters, I mean were quite a few people in the
2: foyer of the hotel. We were all kind of got back to the hotel and um, the manager says, no, the bar's closed. So we said, no way, mate, no way the bar's closed. So we kind of Got the bar open, but it was Straussy's birthday, and all the England boys were obviously gutted. They just lost the bar, and like it's probably one of the most embarrassing defeats they ever experienced, in many people's eyes. And um, Strauss's birthday, so we were all a bit drunk, and um, we knew Strauss, myself and Trent knew Straussy. We played cricket with him in Mossman, and he's a great guy. So we all started singing "Happy Birthday, dear Straussy" from the lobby, and um, himself, Paul Collingwood, Matt Pryor came down for a couple of beers, which was really nice actually to kind of have a beer with some of the opposition.
3: They got a bit of gentle ribbing from some of the Irish guys.
2: and um, for then to say, like, listen, lads, top draw, you beat us on the day, top class, and, uh, you know, enjoy it. So that was quite a nice little touch, actually. I don't remember a
3: huge amount, but I just remember it being people unbelievably happy. Supporters were unbelievably
4: happy. That was probably the best thing about it, really. How did that day change Irish cricket, do you think?
2: 2007 gave everyone, I reckon, in Ireland, two, three months kind of love for the game of cricket. So when we beat Pakistan, you know everyone knew about cricket all of a sudden. But then they kind of died down. Like we came back from the World Cup in 2007. There was no cricket. Man. We were playing Kenton, the C&G trophy or something like that. There was no training. Three of the boys had no kit. It was almost like the last three months had been a waste. But in 2011, we had four good years in between that actually we had good performances at the World Cup in Trent Bridge, beating Bangladesh, Trent Bridge, running Sri Lanka close at Lords in the 2009 World Cup. So 2011, I think, kind of made everyone in Ireland, first of all, realise, oh yeah, that game against Pakistan, that wasn't a fluke. And also, these lads are like good professionals, you know, they're here to stay and inspire the next generation. So I think it gave cricket more credibility.
3: There's 20 pretty well-played cricketers here, you know, so there's no particular need to go and even play county cricket, but they have the opportunity to make a good living. And that's something that we definitely didn't have when I was growing up, a young cricketer here, you know, have decided he was going to go and play in England and and try and play test cricket for England. That would look very, very strange because it's only very recently Ireland beat England in an ODI. So why would you go and do that? You know, it wouldn't really sit properly. It
5: kept it going because if 2007 was a one-off, like Kenya in 2003 in South Africa, then Irish cricket doesn't get where it is now. After 2011, we saw, I think, 11 or 12 professional contracts. And then without those contracts the new generation doesn't come through the ease at which we beat west indies in 2015 doesn't happen i don't think without having a big win in 2011 because we got to 2015 and it was like right okay we did okay in 2011 now we need to go and we need to do well here and then we win the first two games of the 2015 world cup and in our heads we're winning the world cup like we <laughs> genuinely believed that we were going to qualify for this the quarterfinals and but for a bit of bad luck in other games, the way results worked out,
2: the Pakistan win. Paul Sterling and George Dockrell and a few others have said, well, they're in school and they kind of got excused from school to go home and watch the cricket, or the teacher let them watch the cricket." And I think 2011 just kind of went. Hmm, we've actually got like a massive hero in Kevin O'Brien. He is a hero to like generation.
4: I started my career in 2007, and so I've been lucky enough to follow Ireland as they've grown. I've travelled to Malahide a couple of times to cover them, including their first test, and I've spent many time with their past players and officials over the years. And I've also had a lot of experience covering other teams. There is simply no cricket culture that is more like a family than Ireland. And I don't just mean that because half their players are from the Joyce or O'Brien family. Cricket is a minority sport in Ireland and Northern Ireland. It grew through the love of a dedicated group of people who wouldn't let their sport die. And even without me having to bring that up, this is what Gary Wilson added to the end of our interview. I think my generation of what happened before us, because we
5: were sort of the lucky ones really that ended up getting paid to play professional cricket for the hard work of guys. You could go on and on like Alan Lewis, Justin Benson, Stephen Wark, volunteers like John Caldwell, Roy Torrance, Cecil Walker, just guys who played for the complete love of the game and wanted to play for Ireland, and our generation are, are very, very aware of those guys and what Irish cricket stands for. And I've never met anyone bitter about it either. You know, those guys are only too happy to see the players do well now. So Irish cricket's a wonderful environment. They really like it's been best days of my life. Like to be involved in Irish cricket, and that anyone really would say the same. It's been lucky enough to play. We're just sort of the lucky ones that are getting to live out their
4: dreams, I suppose. I think for me, that really is what Irish cricket is about. But this win was against England. And when Niall O'Brien really thought about it, this is what he said.
2: You just turned over your biggest rival. Obviously, we're not their biggest rival because we're only a small team.
4: And he's right, isn't he? Ireland is still only a small team. But what did this win mean for them? While it's important that this win against England made the professionals, and hopefully like the win against Pakistan, inspired a bunch of kids watching. It also just made them that little bit bigger. Actually, I'm not going to finish this podcast. Let's let Niall O'Brien explain in his own words exactly how the Irish team got a little bit bigger after this victory.
2: Other sports people started talking to you about cricket. You know, Gaelic players, hurlers, footballers. You, know, you go to a nightclub and Robbie Keem was there, They would be over, talked to you about cricket. It's like surreal stuff. Whereas four years previous, you had a two or three month window when you had to just cash in on the free beers and then it was gone. <laughs>
4: Thanks for listening to Double Century. This podcast was made entirely possible by our supporters at Patreon. The link is in the show notes if you'd like to support us into the future. This episode was written and narrated by me, Jared Kimber. Big thanks to my guests, Ed Joyce, Niall O'Brien, and Gary Wilson for coming on. And our producer is Nick McCorriston. Thank you so much for listening. But if you do like this show, one of the best ways that you can help support us is just simply by sharing it on social media or rating and reviewing it in your favorite podcast apps. If you like my work and want to follow it more, there is a link in the show notes to Linktree, which will show you where I do, I don't know, TikToks and Instagrams and YouTube and Twitter and other podcasts.
1: Sports Social Podcast Network.
0: Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix.
1: Expectations matter. What do you expect from an SUV? Versatility? A range of sizes built to fit your life? A range of exteriors that all invite stairs? Or being able to take control of more than just the wheel? Expectations matter. But exceeding them matters more. How we get there matters. The Audi family of SUVs. Progress you can feel. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.